All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School, where we provide hope and encouragement through the book of Job. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to tell you that's the truth, but man, this is, you want to talk about plowing through the Word of God, that's where we're at today. I mean, here we are in Job 16. We just finished Eliphaz's, like, uh, verbal vomit, right, on multiple levels, 15, 14, 15, 16 different reasons of what's going to happen to the wicked, a.k.a. Job. Eliphaz says, hey, Job, you're going to experience all these things, pain and early suffering, and you're going to lose your, your wealth and barrenness for your family. Like, he just goes on and on and on and on. And that was Eliphaz's second speech. So now Job has to do a rebuttal for a second time, not just to one of his friends. Obviously, but, I mean, this is to Eliphaz, but he has to do this every time to a friend, a friend that unloads, and then he's got to do a rebuttal to counter it. And so what you're going to see, and I like what Constable says, is uh, Job's, this is classic, disgust with his friends. Okay, so here you have, and this is going to last through the first five verses. But, you know, I like what Nelson's commentary says, and they, here's a paraphrase of, uh, now let me read verses two and three, and then I'll read this. It says, then Job answered, I've heard many things like this. You are all miserable comforters. Is there no end? Okay, classic. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? Here, here's the paraphrase of Nelson's. You know, speaking of trouble, rather than comforting me in my troubles, as a good counselor should in a friend, you've increased my trouble despite your claims to the contrary. All you're doing is upping the ante. All you're doing is making fun of me. You're mocking me. You're ridiculing me. You're being sarcastic towards me. And you just increase the trouble. Like, you all are miserable comforters. Do you remember what he called them uh, a couple chapters ago? He called them worthless doctors. Now he says you're miserable comforters. Miserable comforters. So just when he needs a friend to say, hey, you know, Man, let me let me get the fire going for you outside and let me bring you a chair and a blanket and you know, let's bring some some s'mores and just talk and maybe have a cup of chai or a cup of coffee. You know, let's let's talk a little bit more about football. You're not doing any of that. In fact, you're taking the blanket away from me. But your comfort turned into torment, as John MacArthur said. And I like it in verse three, just again, is is there no end? to your empty words. What provokes you to keep doing this, that you continue testifying? Now, this is kind of funny. If you go to Job 6, verse 15, let's just go back to the name calling, right? If you want to learn some names about what to call people, let's learn from Job. And so in Job 6, uh, in Job 6, verse uh, 15, uh, <laughs> my brothers are as treacherous as a wadi, the seasonal streams that flow. So you could call this, uh, Kevin, let, let's come up with a name for these guys. Uh, your swamp monsters. Okay, Kevin, I'm going to write it down. Well, that's kind of... 
swamp monsters. Let's go on if we can. Can we go to Job 13.4? Remember this, we've already said this. Worthless physicians, worthless doctors, right? Uh, this is what he's called them. And then, and you got to remember this. And then he says in Job 8.2, what does he call them? He calls them windbags. So like, you guys, if you want to learn how to call somebody something, go to read the Bible. I mean, these are pretty good. <laughs> Don't take it for Kevin. <laughs> Swamp monst- monsters. Kevin, I tell you what, you, you keep me on my toes. All right, so that's what he's saying. He's saying, these are the things I'm calling you. And in verse 4, though, if you were in my place and I could also talk like you, I could string words together against you and shake my head, shake my head at you. And shaking my head at you, it's, it's a mocking posture. In fact, can you go to Psalm 22, verse 7? Like, <laughs> Psalm to swamp monsters. Oh, my goodness, this is great. Everybody who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. And so, like, look, I, I could do this, too. I could string along words together. I could make it sound fancy. I could shake my head against you. Instead, remember, Job is showing his disgust against Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Instead, though, that's not what I would want to do. I would encourage you with my mouth, and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. I don't know, you guys. You you buy this? I think, I think there's a hint of sarcasm in there, but there's <laughs> truth behind it. I would say he, he, he's already vented. He's got it out. And now he's saying, yeah, but I, I, I would treat you differently. So I, I think there's both and. I would treat you differently. So I, here's what I did. How would you treat somebody like this? Like, how, how do we do this? So if he's saying, I would encourage you with my mouth, how do we do this? How can Job practically do this? Well, uh, there's a guy named Greg Falls, F-A-U-L-L-S. And I started to, to, to do a little bit of a study about how could we live out the golden rule? Okay, so Kevin, if you would, would you go to Matthew 7, 12? Because that's, that's really what he's talking about, right? Now watch, Matthew 7, 12, it just says this. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. So bottom line, Kevin? Don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> Kevin's on a roll today. Like you treat others the way you would want to be treated. So if you don't want somebody to treat you like an idiot, processing that one right now, actually then don't be an idiot to them. <laughs> Just for your record, if I have any fun with this, it's not because I did this. It's because Kevin brought this on himself. So, all right. So five ways that Greg Falls talks about ways to live out, to live out the golden rule. And I want you to think about the context of uh, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay. In other words, how do we love like Jesus? All right. So, you know, number one is, is that you're going to forgive as you want to be forgiven. If, if, uh, if Job wants to actually encourage them with words, he actually has to forgive them. Right? I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. So if you go to Matthew 6, verse 12. Thanks for coming back, Kevin. Matthew 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now watch, go to Colossians 3, verse 13. Okay, same, same mentality here. Accepting one another, look, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against you. Whoa, that would be great. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. So if anybody has a complaint against you, according to Scripture, you must forgive them. So I want to go back here to Job 16. 
Job 16, verse 5, he says, I instead, I would encourage you with my mouth. The way that he can get to that point of even remotely thinking of encouragement is that forgiveness needs to take place already. Forgiveness needs to take place even though he's a mess. He needs to forgive his friends for constantly bombarding him with negativity. And forgiveness is something that we don't really want to do. If somebody's wronged you once, twice, all of your friends, like, what would you rather do? I'd rather go find new friends, right? And this is kind of the mentality, like, you know what? These guys really aren't worth it. Let's go find. But the golden rule says, look, if you want to be treated the way you want to be treated, treat, treat them that way. Treat them as if, uh, as if you're Christ. Forgive them as if you want to be forgiven. That's the only way this whole living out the golden rule, if you really want to see John 16, verse 5, come to, come to fruition, he already has to forgive them. Now, number two, you need to help as you want to be helped. Again, sounds obvious, but if you go to Colossians 3.13, we've already referenced it for forgiveness. But look what it says. Uh, it just says accepting one another. Sometimes that's talking about bearing with one another, forgiving one another. As anybody has a complaint. Uh, and so that accepting one another mentality it, it really, I don't know, Kevin, if another version it says, but bearing with one another. So like if somebody has a need, you should want to help fill it. That's really what it comes down to. Forgive one another and help each other. Let's pull back with uh, Job. How are his friends actually helping him? Well, they're not. Not at all. And so the reality is, is how can Job still help them even though he doesn't care to be around them. So it just, again, simple concept. If he wants to, in Job 16, verse 5, if he actually wants to uh, encourage them, well, let's just go to the third one then, okay? He then should encourage, it's already a part of this golden rule mentality, encourage as you want to be encouraged. So you got to actually start doing it. Go to Hebrews 3, verse 13. He actually has to start not calling them miserable comforters. Oh boy. You can't call them swamp monsters. You can't call them worthless doctors. You can't call them windbags. In Hebrews 3.13 it says, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So if he's going to say in Job 16 verse 5, I'm going to encourage you, what should he do right then and there? Encourage them. But I don't think you can get to that point of encouragement unless you have a heart of forgiveness and unless you're willing to actually help them, unless you're willing to encourage them. OK, so Greg Folds continues on. And there's an interesting Benjamin Franklin. Uh, we, we've heard Benjamin Franklin many times, but here's a quote. He says, most men die from the neck up at age 25, meaning they stop because they stop dreaming. So most men at the age of 25, it's almost like they stop coming up with visions, coming up with dreams, coming up with purpose. And, and a lot of it has to do with because people stop encouraging each other. It's almost like, oh, they're already at that age. They're fine. I just like that perspective. Encourage somebody so that they can fulfill their dream. Encourage somebody so they can get through the day. So here you have living out the golden rule. Forgive one another as you want to be forgiven. Help as you want to be helped and encourage as you want to be encouraged. And then number four, this is kind of the biggie for me in, in, uh, in the Job and in the, in the three friends situation because it really doesn't happen. You need to understand as you want to be understood. 
Nowhere in any... At first, it looks like the friends did this, doesn't it, Kevin? If you go back to the other picture of the three friends. I mean, for seven days, they sat there, and what did they do? They just sat there in silence. So you would think there was some form of understanding. You would think so. But for some reason, uh, once you understand, you got to put yourself in their shoes so that you can help them get out of, out of trouble. In John 8, verse 7, this is the opposite of understanding in, in some sense. In John 8, verse 7, Jesus is, is talking and there's language here. And he says, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And so if you actually understand who she is, where she's coming from, you're never going to throw a stone. Why? Because you have your own issues. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they had their own issues. So if you can understand where Job's coming from and actually connect, then you might actually be able to actually encourage one another because you understand each other. They really have no desire. I think this is a fair statement to understand Job. All they wanted to do is prove their theology. All they wanted to do is prove their, their dogma. All they wanted to do is prove their theory and their truth so that they could show Job was wrong and he's right. Okay, last thing. Greg Falls, F-A-U-L-L-S. Five ways to live out the golden rule. So when I hear in Job 16, 5, I hear him saying, oh man, I would encourage them because they haven't been doing to me. I'm like, well, that sounds really good. But how do you get to that point in your life where people that are annoying the heck out of you, they're idiots. How, how, do, you, how do you, well, you got to forgive them. Maybe you got to help them. Maybe you got to encourage them. Maybe you got to understand in order to be understood. I don't know where you're at in living out the golden rule based on, uh, from Matthew 7, but here's the last thing. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's very applicable. You need to look, okay, look for things. Um, now, let me put it this way. Look for ways to bless people. Can you go to Philippians 2, 4, Kevin? I like this. Everybody should look not only for his own interests, but also everybody should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So at this point, Job needs a genuine say, guys, what? How can I help you? <laughs> they probably laugh. What do you mean, how can you help us? But the reality is those three guys, you guys, like, man, I, can I get you some, uh, anything to help riches for you, for your itching? <laughs> can I help you with anything with your oozing boils? Like, what can I do to the voices that you're hearing in your head? How can I, how can I help you with your house or the things that you've lost or the things that were burnt down or the, the animals that you lost? How can I help? Kevin, I'm, did you hear any of that in Job 1 through 15? You didn't hear any of that. And so I think for me, when, when Job in Job 16, 5 says, I would encourage you with my mouth and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. It's really that's what he wants. I actually believe he, he could do this. I'm not saying that he wouldn't. I'm just saying in order to get to that point, please don't make please don't understand that like it just happens just like that. There's probably some things that are built up that Job's like, dude, you called me this. <laughs> Job, you, you mocked me about my kids dying. And so there's got to be some areas that he probably has to let go in order to help and encourage them. So any other comments, you guys, on the, the golden rule? Any thoughts on any of this? Looks like an easy list that 
should you know we can sit here and commentate on Job and his frustration with his friends, but the reality is we struggle with or I do with trying to do that stuff. Oh, I I think all of us have our moments in every one of those areas. Well, let's keep going. So Job first of all talks about his disgust, right, with his friends, and now you're going to see Job's distress. Again, comes from Warren Wearsby here. Job's distress at at God's hand. Okay, and you're going to see this in verses 6 through 17. And so it says in verse 6, Even if I speak, my suffering is not relieved. And if I hold back, what, what have I lost? Surely he has now exhausted me. I got nothing left. You've devastated my entire family. You've shriveled me up. It has become a witness. My frailty, Scripture says, rises up against me and testifies to my face. And it says in verse 9, His anger tears at me and he harasses me. This is Job describing God. He says, God gnashes his teeth at me. My enemy pierces me with his eyes. He just labeled him as his enemy. Like it's gotten so bad that Eliphaz pours out negativity that Job is just like, man, I, he's starting to buy into it almost. Verse 10 says, They open their mouths against me and they strike my cheeks with content. They join themselves together against me. In verse 11, God's, God hands me over to unjust men. He throws me into the hands of the wicked. Interesting about being thrown into the hands of the wicked. He does say it's not him though. Make sense? Like, he got called the wicked, but now he's saying he got thrown into the hands of the wicked. He says in verse 12, I was at ease, but he shattered me. He seized me by the scruff of the neck and smashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. So like I became uh, practice for God and his arrows. He set me up as his target, my adversary. He becomes my adversary. I love what MacArthur says. I'm shattered. Uh, I'm being shaken. I've been shot at. I'm being sliced. Look in verse 13. His archers surround me. He pierces my kidneys without mercy and pours my bile on the ground. He breaks through my defenses again and again. God charges at me like a warrior. And in verse 15, and so I, I, like, I like what Wearsby does here. What Wearsby does is he says this. He makes a plea for sympathy. And then what he does here is as we're reading this, especially in, in verse 14 where we just said he breaks through my defenses again and again, what you see is he makes a plea for justice. So he's got a plea for sympathy and then he's doing a plea for justice in this process. You've got to just kind of try to keep breaking this thing up. He says in verse 15, I've sewn sackcloth over my skin. I've buried my strength in the dust. Uh, when, you, when you look at Tom Constable's commentary, he says that a defeated animal, once you've been defeated, you often will thrust its horns uh, into the dust. So like you're showing yourself, I'm, I'm not fighting anymore. And Job, here he is, he's comparing himself to a defeated animal. And so how does Job express his defeat? How does he dis, uh, you know, uh, express his distress at God's hands? Well, one of them, we've already, you've already read this, but he puts a sackcloth 
on. And then look what he does. He wept with humiliation and contrition. So this is how he's showing his distress. And then, I guess I should say this, the last one. He buried his face in dust. Verse 16, my face has grown red with weeping and darkness covers my eyes. Although my hands are free from violence and my prayer is pure. So here you have Job's disgust with his friends and now Job's distress at God's hand. Like there really isn't. It doesn't seem like there's any hope in this situation. What I want to do is I want to just communicate one more truth here. The constable says, and I really like it, Job, then because of this, because of life, can I just say that? Because of life, Job's desire is for a representation, to say a representative in heaven. going to see in verses 18 and that's actually going to go to because 16 and 17 are both Job talking in response right to Eliphaz but Job's it goes into 17 too now watch this in verse 18 this is awesome to me 18 19 20 21 22 this is kind of like the climax to me in my opinion so he has no friends that's what he's saying and oh by the way God I don't know where you're at in all this that's what he's saying I don't, I don't know where you're at and I, I'm a mess So he says, earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. Here's what I love about this, you guys. Job called on the earth, okay? Constable says not to cover his blood so that the blood might cry to God for vindication. So even though he's dead, let the blood speak out for itself. I'm not guilty. Where have we seen this? In Genesis 4, verse 10. Job did not want people to forget his case. He did not want people to be like, what in the world? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is what Job is saying in Job uh, uh, 16, verse 18. I want the blood to cry out to let everybody know I'm not guilty. And then in verse 19, he says, even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is in the heights. So it's crazy, even though Job's at distress, he only could turn to God. Even though God was silent and he hadn't vindicated Job, he believed that somewhere there's a witness for him. He says in verse 20, my my friends scoff at me as I weep before God. Because they think it's not working. And in verse 21, it says, I wish that someone might arbitrate between a man and God just as a man pleads for his friend. For only a few years will pass before I go the way of no return. Again, if you go to verse 21, this is where I want to turn the corner. This is Job's plea. He's got no friends. He's crying out to the Lord. He says, I just want somebody to speak on my behalf. I love what MacArthur says. Here it is. Who's going to help? The pleading would be for a verdict of an innocent of, of innocence on behalf of a friend or neighbor in a court setting before the judge or the king. If somebody would only go before the king, if somebody would only go before the judge and speak on my behalf and say, this man is innocent. That's what Job is saying. Please, where is the advocate? Where is my intercessor? What an awesome picture, you guys, of the promised redeemer.
There's been a lot of discussion about, is Job actually talking about a human? Is he actually talking about a quote-unquote lawyer that could represent him? Is that really what he wants? Does he really want a friend? Does he really want a neighbor that could represent him? Yes. I think it's all of the above. But I also think it's a foreshadow of what ultimately Christ, the advocate, does for all of us. He's the one that actually represents us uh, before the Lord. And you guys have seen this, but here's my little image, right? So here you have man. And here you have God. And what Job is saying is, somebody please represent me to God. Somebody please get me before the judge, before the king, because right now I cannot do this. I need an impartial mediator that can represent me. And if you go to 1 Timothy 2, 5. 1 Timothy 2, 5. It's a cool picture for there is one God and there's one mediator. Between God and man, a man and his name is Christ Jesus. You've seen this drawing a hundred times in your life, maybe even more. But in Job 16, I can't think of a better image. This is what he's longing for. Please send me and somebody that can arbitrate between man and God. And look what it says in 1 Timothy 2.5. Oh, there, there is one. There's a mediator and his name is Christ Jesus. And you know this, but the way that this happens, you guys, is by the way of the cross. Kevin, we go to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2. He himself is the propitiation, the substitution for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So Jesus in this text says he's the advocate for all mankind. The question and the challenge is, is do you believe that he's your advocate? Do you actually believe that every one of us are stuck in the sinful state and that that sinful state leads to death? That death separates us actually from God. Yes, that death actually puts us over here. But if you believe that Christ is the mediator, if you believe that he's the advocate, then you'll understand Romans 5.8. And Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love that while we were still apart from God, while we're still sinning, yes, Christ actually died for us. So guess what happened? Christ actually gave us an outlet. He took us before the throne. And in Ephesians 2.8.9, the scripture is so clear. If you actually confess because of God's grace, if you confess, yes. Well, let me just back up for a second. If you actually realize that this is God's gift. That this cross is God's gift. If you realize because of God's grace through faith, then all you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you to be my advocate. Jesus, I want you to be my mediator. Jesus, I need you to be my go-between. Really what you're saying is, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. If you say that and you actually believe it in your heart, the scripture says, by all means, man, you can come before the throne. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of Job 16, 21, when Job is saying, I just need a man to go between me and God and plead on behalf of me. What I love is, is uh, Hebrews 7, verse 23, Kevin, if you would. Uh, 25, sorry. He says, therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is able to save anybody 
that comes to God and how? Through Christ himself. He can save you. He is the go-between because he came here on earth. He died on a cross, was buried, and on the third day he came back to life. And that's what he wants to give you and me. He wants to give every single one of us life. And no matter where you live, no matter what country you're in, doesn't matter what state you're in, he wants to serve as the go-between before God. You simply have to literally say, God, I need, <laughs> I need Jesus to be my advocate. And when that happens, when you believe in the promised Redeemer, you're given life. At that point, at that time, Job didn't, didn't have it. We do. All right, guys. It's a great picture, powerful picture. And my prayer is, is that you all realize that Christ has done this for each one of us. Thanks. We'll talk to you tomorrow. 